and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Today, I have yet another accomplished leader with me, this time from Menlo Park, California. It is my pleasure to welcome Adam Wolf, who is the VP of Engineering at Robinhood, but someone who has also founded a startup that was later acquired, and someone who, among many other things, has also worked at Facebook for eight years. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much. It's exciting to be here. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. Before we jump into today's topic, please tell us a bit about your passions. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, before we start anything, I just want to say we're recording this at a time in the U.S. when we've seen some horrifying images of institutionalized violence, first against people of color, then against the American people who demonstrate to protest that. I just want to say that seems much more important than anything we'll talk about today. And I I just want to say that I stand against racism and authoritarianism in the U.S. and everywhere. We got to also continue doing what we do. So I'm happy to talk also about engineering and engineering management today so uh, we can get into it. As you said, I'm Adam Wolf. I work at Robinhood. Robinhood is a financial institution. We offer financial services that let our users trade equities, U.S. stock equities, options, crypto. We're looking to expand to the U.K., so we've been working on that. And uh, we've got a number of other financial products that we're looking to uh, continue to build and roll out. It's a very challenging business, very interesting uh, set of requirements. I've learned a lot working on these problems for uh, finance. Uh, Before that, as you said, I worked at Facebook for eight years. Um, Facebook and the management culture there especially really shaped a lot of my views about engineering and about engineering management. So if there are any people who worked at Facebook listening to this, you'll recognize a lot of my thinking comes from that. Um, Facebook is very anti-fragile. I think that's about it. You know, I live in California and uh, I enjoy cooking and and, uh, I really like the snow as well. So uh, just taking a walk in the snow or snowboarding or skiing, all good things. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for for stating your views. I think it's very important that people know that other people stand by their protests or their points of view. And um, I totally agree with you. Today's topic is so interesting. And one might think it's a bit academic, but it can also be applied to real life scenarios. So I will first be providing some context um, to our listeners because today our discussion is uh, borrowing some ideas from the book Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. And Adam will share how he applied these ideas to build and manage teams that thrive under pressure or uncertainty or shock. And one of the key concepts here is um, black swan events. These events are surprising and hard to predict, but in hindsight, they are often interpreted quite differently. 
So to our listeners, if you're not familiar with Black Swan events, here is your chance to pause this uh, podcast episode and look it up on Wikipedia. But um, to go a little further, basically, um, there are three kinds of uh, teams, institutions, states of being. One of them is being fragile, where a small amount of stress can be fatal to the individual or the team. And uh, the bigger the stress, basically, the bigger the negative impact in these uh, scenarios. Someone or something can be robust, where we always use this word in software when we talk about uh, software that is um, not easily changed by circumstance. But basically, this kind of event returns to the same state when suffering from a stressor and then there is anti-fragile where something or someone gets better under stress one of the examples that um, Nassim Taleb talks about is the general working on your muscles where you stress your muscles and they get bigger and stronger so now that that's all clear what are the internal and external forces that can put high pressure or stress on your engineering team? Thanks for that introduction. It was great, very clear, and the fast introduction to a lot of complex topics. I really encourage people to take a look at, uh, as you say, the Wikipedia page is a great resource here. Uh, the actual books and Mr. Taleb himself can be a little hard to digest sometimes. You know, his tone and the way he comes across is, it's sometimes aggressive. But the ideas in there, I think, are too good to be ignored. So um, I really encourage people to look at these things. And maybe like me, you heard about this idea of black swan events. And, and you already introduced this. But, you know, it's the idea that, like, in general, when we think about risk as humans, we do a poor job of this because we're likely to encounter a massive stressor or change, like a small number of times in our lifetime, you know, maybe four or five. And I have to say, you know, given what we talked about at the beginning, like it feels like this is one of those times with this global pandemic and the sort of balance of like protest and authoritarianism happening, not just in the U.S., but across the world. Um, so uh, it's the point that he makes in, in the Black Swan book and, and Antifragile is the third book in, in his trilogy. The first book is just about this fact that, that we have a hard time thinking about these kinds of events. Maybe like me, you read this book and you're like, okay, that's interesting, but what do I do about this? How do I respond to that? I think the, the third book and Anti-Fragile is so great, I think, because it's a real answer to this question of like, how do you line up against the real likelihood that you will encounter a risk that you cannot plan for and you cannot think about? And the way to do that is to be anti-fragile. It's not just to survive shock it's to benefit from shock. And ideally to set yourself up so that the bigger the shock, the more you benefit. That's what you're looking for. Now, when we encounter this as engineering teams, you know, there's a few things that I think we encounter in software. Uh, you mentioned that I had a startup for a little while. Um, it was this little startup called ShareGrove. And I think that project suffered from what I would describe as probably the most common thing that we face as engineers, which is a product that no one really wants to use. <laughs> And I think that, like that, that happens a ton. You know, you, you have this great idea and you go build it and you put it out there and you're like, no, I'll just wait for the dollars or the users to roll in and, th and that doesn't happen. And uh, that puts a lot of stress on you and your engineering team when you don't have product market fit. And what everyone knows is that you have to keep changing things. Sometimes you even have to pivot your whole startup from one idea to another because you find that uh, what you thought would work doesn't really work. But you know, on the flip side of that, there's a whole nother 
kind of stress that we encounter if, if we're lucky, I would say, uh, which is the kind of stress that Robinhood faced earlier this year when uh, we just saw amazing amounts of growth in our platform and uh, a tremendous amount of growth and engagement with our platform. And that puts stress on our systems and scaling up to meet that demand is challenging. Actually, we just saw, so Slack had an outage a, few, a couple weeks ago, it was really scary, which is the internal communication tool that Robinhood depends on. And, uh, you know, I think that was probably all about them seeing a tremendous amount of load and you do what you can to kind of scale up as you encounter this stress, but it's hard to anticipate and it's hard to recover when that goes down. And then the last thing I'll point out is that, you know, there are other extrinsic forces that create shock or stress for our engineering teams. And this pandemic, COVID-19 is a great example here where all of a sudden, you know, we can't go to the office anymore and everything from little things of like, how do you conduct a whiteboard meeting remotely to how do you organize your days and weeks, measure productivity, make sure you're moving forward, do creative work. Uh, all of these questions are open again. That's a huge shock to the system. One that, you know, I think the technology industry is responding pretty well to. I would agree. So I kind of feel like you have mentioned these stressors that are dependent on so many things like product market fit and building a system that will take a high load and really having engineers who are capable of dealing with any kind of stress, I guess, or maybe building some buffer zone of uh, project managers or agile coaches who will be helping these managers in dealing with these kind of stressors. Let's bring it back to anti-fragility and let's talk about the characteristics of an anti-fragile team. Yeah, you bet. There are a few things that uh, Mr. Talib talks about in his anti-fragile book that I think are directly relevant to how we manage our engineering teams. And there's a few concepts that I'll just introduce quickly and then go back over. So I think the number one thing you can do to be anti-fragile, and again, the idea of anti-fragile is, is that it's more than just you survive when stresses happen. It's that you, you profit when stresses happen. So the number one way to line up against that is to preserve optionality. And that just, you know, that has a lot of implications. Some of them are really counterintuitive. I want to go back for what it means to preserve optionality when you're running an engineering team. Then there's this idea, he calls it via negativa because he's kind of fond of Latin, but that just means removing things. And actually that's a really, you know, obviously simplicity as engineers, I think we all intuitively understand that like, it's so much better to take something away to, from a system than to add it. Uh, but I can talk a little bit about how we do that with our teams. And then the last concept he has is that you want the individuals involved to have skin in the game. And uh, we can talk about that a little bit. I feel I like this that. is a bit of a reach. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I just, I love the skin in the game concept. Yeah. When I first encountered it, I was thinking about it for days, you know, like who do you ask for input about certain matters and, and stuff like that, just to give our listeners uh, a little bit of uh, insight. Uh, I'm getting my car fixed. And so if I ask my mechanic, do I need this or that changed? He has a better outcome financially if he says, you know, I should get whatever changed in my car because he's the one who will be doing it. But if I ask, you know, would you change this if it were your car? Then that's an entirely different perspective that he can take on. So yeah, so that's just um, the skin in the game yeah, concept. Absolutely. Let's start there, actually, because I think it's surprisingly difficult to implement as an engineering team. And it is super important that everyone feel 
not just empowered, but also accountable. And for Mr. Talib, I think this is also something of a rip on academia, which is one of his favorite kind of hobby horses is to criticize academia. But, you know, he makes some good points that uh, if you if you can just, you know, sit and pontificate and it doesn't really matter if you're right or wrong, and you see this a lot, then, you know, actually, it's unlikely that you'll even make a good prediction because there's nothing to correct you and there's nothing to sort of pull you back towards reality. We had an interesting example of this at Robinhood recently where the team at Robinhood is, is quite junior or has been. For a long time, we've hired these really brilliant new grads out of top schools and top programs. And uh, the team has built amazing software. And what a new graduate from a four-year college, mostly in the US, can do coming out of school using open source software and some of the simple systems that we've built at Robinhood to support them is truly remarkable. And Robinhood is really based on that. But what we've also found is that that led to this world where we had a lot of young people who didn't have a lot of experience from other companies. And when we would go to look for someone internally to convert to manager, because I think it's really important to have a manager core that's comprised of both internal conversion and externally experienced managers. Anyway, when we would convert these folks, they would typically be like oftentimes the best technical contributor on their team. I don't think that's a mistake. That's, that's just fine. It's usually someone who's also kind of playing a leadership role there. But what we've been doing kind of was like, as people start to climb the ladder of abstraction and start to become better engineers, we're converting them to manager. And so what it meant is that in a lot of cases, the way that our software engineering teams were running was that the manager was not just responsible for the people and the plan and the business impact of the team, but also making a lot of the technical choices for the team as, as well. And when we started to hire senior individual contributors into Robinhood, you know, we had this interesting thing, which is that it wasn't enough just to bring them in and say, okay, have at it. Uh, because the way we were set up was that, you know, the managers would dictate what the teams were doing pretty much down to the task level. So we needed to introduce a new concept at Robinhood, this idea of a tech lead. And the idea of a tech lead is it's someone who is responsible for the direction of a technical system at Robinhood. And uh, that can be a whole a huge area like, hey, the whole idea of our software platform, everything about how we build and release code to something really small. Like, you know, this is how we do funds transfer in and out of Robinhood. But the most important concept with this tech leads thing is that uh, we need to pair empowerment with accountability. It's not enough to just tell someone that they're responsible for something. Uh, you also have to give them some levers to pull. Otherwise, it's not meaningful that you've given them this responsibility. I think we're at the beginning of this journey with tech leads, but that's an example, I think, where we have to set this role up so that the tech lead has skin in the game. And that goes both ways. It's both the ability to direct and influence the direction, but then also at the end, you know, a question about like, well, how did this go? So, you know, going back to the beginning, the, I think that the biggest thing I took away from anti-fragile and uh, the thing I think about the most is the idea that we need to preserve optionality and not being committed to a course of action is incredibly valuable. And, you know, this is interesting because in, in software, obviously we have to plan a little bit. You know, if we really take each day as it comes, we won't go anywhere. You know, we'll just kind of go in circles. And, and you see there's obviously 
thousands and thousands of pages devoted to the question of like, how do you get a team organized and get them to put together some big piece of software over months and years? But especially in the presence of black swan events, you know, the more options you have, the more different ways you can respond to that. And, you know, this has some interesting implications. So the first one and, and one that I really learned at Facebook is the value of incrementality. So anytime someone brings me a plan where it's like, hey, we have to do this for three months and everything will get worse. And then at the very end of it, things will get better. That is a bad plan. That is not a good plan because I don't know if it's working. Also, I really despise it when we try something for like a month and it's not working at all. And people say, oh, the problem here is that we're not doing it hard enough. You know, we actually need to do it more in order for this to work. Now, the unfortunate thing is that sometimes that's true. Sometimes it really is the case that you're on the right track, but you know, you just need to wait or invest more and, and that's unavoidable. But I think the point that Mr. Talib makes that I like so much is that a plan where it takes you six months, but you have checkpoints along the way might be better than a plan where it takes you three months, but you really don't know how you're doing until the end, especially because at month one and a half, you may have to redirect a little bit. You know, I have a little example of this too. I, I think, um, one of the projects that I worked on that I'm most proud of is this project called Relay Modern. I won't tell the whole story, but uh, working at Facebook, you know, I was responsible for one of the teams that was working on uh, GraphQL and the client-side implementation of GraphQL that goes along with React. It's called Relay. And for a long time, Relay was not doing that well as a software project. It was slow and very complicated, and it wasn't adding that much value. And uh, we decided that we needed to rebuild it. So we called the, the version we had Relay Classic and, and we conceived of this new version we called Relay Modern. And the team did something that I think is brilliant and I don't see it enough. Usually what you do is, you know, you build a new version and you tell everybody, hey, we're deprecating the old version. Here's the new API. You've got this long to, to migrate. Or sometimes what you'll see is you see people take the old version and build forwards compatibility into it to make it easier for someone to switch incrementally. But what this team did that I thought was so interesting was that they took the new version and the new architecture, which is much more flexible than Relay Classic, and they built backwards compatibility into it. So the idea was that you could adopt Relay Modern without changing your APIs and then slowly fix every call site and, and gain the benefits of Relay Modern. So that's a story where, you know, by preserving the optionality for the developer, the Relay team was able to migrate a gigantic code base at Facebook and, and help the whole community move forward in a smart way. Oh, awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's a great story. You know, another implication here that I think is tough for us as managers to accept, but I've seen this in a number of cases, is that you really have to be careful investing too much in planning, I think. We often think that, like, especially when things go awry, we're like, next time, I'm never going to let this happen. I'm going to make a much better plan. There's that famous quote, like, plans don't survive contact with the enemy. And, you know, that, that's been my experience over and over again. And, you know, especially for a fast-moving startup like Robinhood, we really have trouble predicting what's going to happen. You know, we made this, like, really elaborate development plan. And then what we saw was that, like, we weren't doing anything and our user growth was skyrocketing just because of the external conditions. And that really changed everything that we we're planning to do. And it, it really makes it seem like, you know, a lot of the effort we put into planning our development was kind of wasted. So it makes me think that you want to spend as little as you can on planning, kind of a surprising result. 
However, based on what you said earlier, I think there is a lot of value in having your checkpoints. Yeah. Every now and then, in some previously agreed upon fashion, check whether or not the team is going towards some goal. And if you set your ideals beforehand and say, if we have achieved this and this and this by that time, we will know that we are moving in the right direction. That's important, perhaps. <laughs> maybe Absolutely. And, maybe. you know, I think that, yeah, I, I think we would all say that's what makes software engineering so hard is that it's a balance, right? You've got to have a plan and it's really valuable to state, hey, this is our milestone and, and you know, this is when we expect to hit it. And to hold yourself accountable to that because that, that's the only way you really know how you're doing. At the same time, I think if you plan too far ahead or you make too detailed of a plan, that's where you get into trouble. So I think making a solid plan for the next increment is really valuable. I think you get in trouble when you look too far ahead or you build too many plans. So that, that actually leads me to the last point that Mr. Todd makes that I wanted to bring up here, which is that one of the best ways to be anti-fragile is to be simple. You know, the more complex something is, the more fragile it is. And I think we all intuitively understand this. Just picture like, you know, some really intricate crystal thing, right? If that falls, it's it's going to be really bad. And, and Mr. Talib uses the idea of like a box of sand as the most anti-fragile thing. You know, if you, if you were to shake that really hard, it would turn into a diamond, you know? So that's what you want is like something really simple and and like low entropy. So what we can do to, to do that is take things away. And uh, this is obviously an important engineering principle. We all know that the best systems are the simplest systems. And if you're a fan of Rich Hickey, as I am, you know that simple isn't easy. In fact, it's extremely difficult. It's what we strive for. So one thing I really learned in my role is, you know, I'd been an engineering director at Facebook and there my role was a little more to like kind of cheerlead the team and represent the team and urge them forward. One thing I found that was different in my VP role at Robinhood was that I found myself needing to say no. And I really resisted this for a long time because, you know, especially at Facebook, it was such a creative and fertile environment that we really encouraged people to just do what they wanted and build cool things. And, you know, it just felt like this garden where you just kind of pour fertilizer and things would just grow. And it was okay if it was a little chaotic. But what I learned at Robinhood was that, especially we have a much more complicated development pipeline because our products have very complicated requirements. There's often months of regulatory and legal work that goes on before we can even ship a relatively simple seeming experiment. So saying no is actually a really important role for engineering leaders to push back on overly ambitious, basically ideas that come from the business, you know, and the business doesn't really have skin in the game. So that's surprisingly important and something that I really had to learn in my first year or so doing this job. And then, you know, there's one other point I wanted to make before we move on, which is that, you know, when we talk about removing things, there's one other way in which I think as engineers, we have to be really careful. You know, we love shiny things and new things. And I think in general, we really have to be careful with new things because they tend to suck way more than we expect them to. New database technology is probably my favorite example of this. I love new database technology. I'm always like, you know, looking at the docs for Cockroach DB or whatever it is and, and asking like, why can't we have nice things? But you know, at Robinhood, we've made a decision to not only stick with, but double down on Postgres DB, which is something that, you know, goes back to 1970. And the reason why is that Postgres has basically the industry defining guarantees around transactionality. 
And if you think about what Robinhood does, you know, we're all about transactions. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a mistake that like, you know, d database transactions and financial transactions, that's the same word because it's really the same thing. I think a lot of our intuitions about what a transaction is are captured by SQL database transactions, something that we all understand and agree on. So I, I think engineering leaders need to be really careful about where they adopt new things. And in general, probably need to help kind of provide back pressure and encourage the team to be conservative in their technology choices. Wow, a big mic drop there. Bold statement, I know, yeah. but, uh, and you know, I love new things. That's, that's the sad thing. And I think it doesn't mean you can't innovate. You know, I, I think like I worked on React at Facebook and um, I'm really proud of that project. And I think what people don't always realize with React is it seems so new and different, but it actually is really just like functional programming applied to user interface with a lot of nice flourishes to it. So It doesn't mean you can't innovate, but it, it does mean that you have to be careful and you really have to choose your spots. We talk about actually having these innovation tokens for every project. So it's good to use one or two innovation tokens when you're doing something, but it's really bad if you're trying to innovate in every area simultaneously, because it's really hard to tell what's working and what's not. Right, and here is where, I'm sorry, I'm really uh, interested in this um, planning part that you have mentioned. And uh, somehow in my head, I really connected to agility. You know, like um, I, when I first learned about how in the beginning software engineer was um, going by this waterfall method and people very planning a huge software and uh, they were not meeting with the clients for perhaps years at sometimes and, right. and you know at the end some software came out and of course the requirements were changed and the environment was changed and that I think is really going well with what you said about planning because in my mind agility creates these checkpoints for for software engineering teams where they you know present to the customer they have a demo of the new features that they have uh, designed and i just wanted to ask you how do you think agile software development ties into the idea of anti-fragility Yeah, that's great. You know, I love that connection. I honestly hadn't made it until you mentioned it. So it absolutely ties in. And I would say there are some things, what I don't like about Agile is that it's become like more of a religion and a cult than a set of suggestions or ideas. Uh, but the basic idea that the team should get together pretty much every morning and talk about what they're doing, that's a great idea. The idea that you should run your development in like one, two, or probably maybe three week increments, that's another great idea. I think what I see missing from Agile sometimes is the longer arc. I think Agile is preserves optionality really well in terms of when your development doesn't go quite as you think it will. I don't think Agile has these moments in it where you consider like black swan or like bigger changes. What can happen with Agile is it can be surprisingly short-sighted in its way because you set this goal of like, hey, we're going to ship our V1 and then you work in these two-week increments towards that V1. But what's missing, I think, in Agile is the one-month, three-month kind of checkpoints where you say, hey, are we still building the right product? Where are we going with this? We're like adding buttons and moving things around and responding to customer requests, but are we actually going anywhere? Again, like as you pointed out, 
you need to plan. Over planning is bad. So you need to get all of these things right. But from 10,000 feet, agile and preserves optionality in a really great way, especially in the way that like you find out that certain stories take longer to complete than you thought they would. And you need to rethink like how you're doing that. So I totally agree. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let's jump into our next question. This is a really good one. How can you measure whether your engineering team is fragile? Um, unless, you know, if you want to give them a huge stressor and see how they respond. <laughs> how, will you, how will you see if they are robust? How will you see if they are anti-fragile? Yeah, I like that. You could just, uh, you know, artificially create uh, problems for them. And actually, if you think about chaos testing, which uh, is something that Robinhood is starting to do, we actually do this. You know, we do try to introduce shocks to our system and see how we respond. So uh, that even actually happens. But, you know, in, in your question is the answer, I would say, which is that, you know, Mr. Taub points out that like part of the reason why technology has advanced so quickly in the last couple decades is, is precisely because it's measurable. And the basic example that Mr. Talib uses in the um, anti-fragile book is one of a hyperbolic curve. You know, we're moving in, in the x-axis in one direction yields a bigger y movement than moving in the other direction. That's fundamentally anti-fragile, especially if the benefit is like going up the y-axis. Um, because what it means is that in the presence of a random shock that moves you in a, a random amount on the x-axis, you're more likely to benefit more from it than you are to suffer from it. But that's all meaningless if you don't know where you are on that curve. So I think that's why measurement is the key to being anti-fragile, because you don't know where you are or what direction you're going unless you build that map. And I think you know this is really easy to talk about, but there's actually surprisingly little roadmaps here. You know, And, and when I came to Robinhood especially, I didn't realize how much I took for granted how much of this observability and measurement was already in place at Facebook, both as a culture and as a technology. Hopefully, we've all had the experience as an engineer of how difficult it is to get a really good graph of something. Because you know it's, it's almost always one of the most latent things that we do. We write the change, and then we push it into production, and then the users have to use it, and maybe it's behind an experiment. And then, you know, we start collecting the data and we realize, ah, oh, crap, I forgot to log this one important dimension or the sign is off or whatever. And then, you know, then you have to go through that process again. So what I see is that it often takes weeks or months to get a metric right. Uh, and then once you start measuring it, you realize like this isn't really even the metric that we need. So I think the number one thing that you can do to be anti-fragile is just measure things. That's what you have to do. And you, you have to create room for your engineering team to do that because it doesn't, on the face of it, seem like the most important thing, right? Like it seems like there are other things we could do to make our systems more uh, robust or, you know, add features or whatever it is. So helping the business understand the value of this observability and helping every engineer understand that is, is an important role we can play as engineering leaders. So, you know, I think that's overall for a software company. Now, when it comes to engineering management itself, you know, I think this is notoriously hard to measure. And this is like kind of at the edge of what I've been thinking about. So I can tell you some things that we're trying at Robinhood, but I, I really don't have a lot of answers here. You mentioned um, chaos testing just a few moments ago, and I would love for yeah. you to elaborate on that a little bit. 
oh, sure. Yeah, well, you made a joke that, you know, we could intentionally shock the system and see how our team responds. And the idea of chaos testing is, is that you do that to your systems. What we don't want to do is just like randomly fire five people and then make sure that the team is okay with that. You know, it would be a good test of the engineering team, but it's, it's rough. These are real people, so we can't do that. But the idea of just kind of randomly going in and just like, let, hey, let's turn off these 10 load balancers or like, let's just make it so that the disk is full and see what happens. This is the idea of chaos testing where you simulate failure conditions that you might see in production. And the idea is that if you do this, then you know you're doing it and you've got everyone on deck ready to respond and you understand what the root cause is before you even begin. So you can observe what the cascading failure conditions are due to that root cause. If you don't do this, you're guaranteed for it to happen at a time when you might be asleep or you certainly don't know and you'll have to go find that root cause. So we're just undertaking this a little bit at Robinhood. We want to build a much more robust program around this. But you know, there's a similar idea, which is load testing. That might be a little more natural for us to drop, which is just the idea, again, that like you never want your users to really set a record for your maximum uh, RPS. You want to set that record yourself at a time when you know, ideally there aren't a lot of people on your site. So if something breaks, uh, you can fix it. So I think it's a good example of it's good to be direct and literal with these things, you know, like let's be anti-fragile by just knocking something off the shelf. And if it breaks, well, you better replace that thing. <laughs> Make it rubber. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Back to measurements, some things that we're trying to measure at Robinhood. You know, one thing that I always say is that I think if you don't know what else to do as an engineering leader, the thing you should do is improve your release process because if you can write software and release it more quickly, everything good starts with that, <laughs> you know? And, and ideally, like continuous release, I think should be the goal of every engineering team because contrary to what you might intuitively think, it's actually the safest thing. Basically what it means is that you trust all of your systems so that it's really hard to get a bad change through. The more you're relying on individual testing or that one guy who does this special thing before every release or whatever, the more fragile you are. So just keeping track of how long does it take from when I first put up a proposed change, including all the code review and everything, all the tests, all that stuff, to when it makes it in production and try to shrink that window, I think is probably one of the best things that we can measure. And then once we start measuring it, I think we naturally improve it. Uh, so release velocity is the, like the fundamental measure of velocity. And if you think about anti-fragility, right? Like even if your team doesn't have any idea about whether a change is good or bad, as long as they can observe whether that change was good or bad, we'll keep the good changes and roll back the bad ones and we'll make progress. And you know, this is basically how Facebook operates. It's kind of this massive random experiment generator and it's amazing at finding local maxima for things. You know, now that approach has some problems too, because you end up with these really complicated implementations that you don't fully understand. Very hard to move off the local maximum, but as a fundamental mechanism for improving your product and your team, it, it actually works super well. So measuring release velocity. Next thing is like kind of organizationally, I think OKRs are really interesting as a measurement tool. So OKRs kind of come from Google. I think before that they were at Sun or something. I forget where they, they, they predate Google, but Google like really institutionalized them. The idea is that you state an objective, which is like grow the number of 
engaged weekly active users. And then you state some key results, which are like, you know, L5 of seven, that's like users who visit the site five days out of seven grows from 33% to 34%. You know, that's a key result. And uh, the idea is that you state an objective, which is a business goal. Then you state a key result, which is usually ideally a measurable result, something that you can just say, yep, we did this or no, we didn't. And the interesting thing about OKRs is that like, it's less important what happens with your OKR and that you may meet all your key results or that you achieve your objectives. I think it's more important that you go back and look at what you thought you were going to do six months ago and say, holy smokes, we were just so wrong about what was important and what these key results were. And we thought we were measuring L5 of seven correctly, but it turns out that metric was busted and we were flying blind. So I think it helps you develop sensitivity again, and it helps you hone in on like, what is the right level for us to do planning? And that answer is really different for like a 10 person startup versus a 10,000 person engineering organization. And then, you know, the last thing I want to talk about is, uh, I have this dream of doing workflow measurement, but you know, I, I think Robinhood isn't ready for this yet. We're working towards it, but what I'd really like to do at Robinhood is get everybody at the company, every single person, the ops team, the GNA, the, the administrative, you know, the admins, everybody to use Jira to track the work that they're doing. And I think there's a lot of interesting metrics you could generate from Jira about, you know, not so much like, I think people have this idea of like, oh, how many bugs you open or something like that. Those are all terrible metrics because like how big is a bug and you know that you don't want to measure that. But an interesting thing might be how often does a individual ticket cross organizational boundaries or even just like what are the varying levels of engagement with this workflow tool? So I think as we move towards more observability at Robinhood, I would like to gain more insight into how we're working. And especially in this distributed world, I think staying organized is so important and, and centralizing on a tool. So I'm a big process nerd. I would really like to see us dial this in. Honestly, it's been more challenging and more work than I ever thought it could be. Because, you know, really, it starts with convincing every single person at the company that this is an important area to invest. I think, you know, a lot of us naturally have this feeling of like, hey, do I really need to do all this? Can I just do my work? Like, isn't that more important? But I think as engineers, we know that like it's it's actually the second and third order things that really help us improve and, and uh, give us control. Wow. Thank you for that idea. So basically, when you have an engineering team that's anti-fragile, you really, really need to focus on measuring and measuring the right things at small increments of time, I am assuming. And you have to have accountability paired with responsibility, I am assuming. Empowerment. Empowerment, yeah, yeah that too. And if you give all these things to your engineering team, then perhaps you will get an anti-fragile team. I think so. And, you know, actually, that leads me to a point I was going to make later. But, uh, you know, I, I think it leads up to it nicely, which is that the most fragile thing you can do is direct your team in detail. Because what, ha what if you're not there, you know, like, how do you know everything that your team is doing? And also you have by far the least information about the details of this issue. So the more you can set a direction and help a team identify for themselves what they're trying to do and, and to do it, uh, the better you're doing. The most anti-fragile thing 
in the whole world is to just remove yourself, you know? And let um, your team so figure it out. Yeah. Amazing. So now that we are here, if you have a fragile team, how do you turn it into an anti-fragile team? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I don't want to pretend that I know, but I want to tell a little story about Robinhood uh, because I think it's something that we're trying to do that I hope makes us more anti-fragile. So in last year, through most of 2019, we were running in uh, what I would describe as a matrixed organization. And all I mean by that is that uh, we were set up in functional teams. So like there was an iOS team and an Android team and, and a team that programs like our concurrent Go systems. And what was good about that was like, it was easy to place people in the organization, easy to build knowledge and share it. Uh, what was bad about that was that every time you wanted to do a project, you had to talk to like 15 different teams. And this had some other problems too, which it, it meant that like the project lead, often a PM, kind of had to help hammer out technical agreements across a bunch of different teams. So at the end of 2019, we reorganized and we went to uh, what I would describe as a vertical organization, one where the teams are set up to solve business problems. So instead of having an iOS team, now we have a cash management team. And that team has iOS programmers, Android programmers, backend programmers. It even has data scientists and designers attached to it. And they're a squad that together, they are responsible for making our cash management product better every day. And if you think about it, that's much more anti-fragile than having every team individually, the iOS team and Android team individually prioritize the tasks coming from the cash management effort. Because then it simplifies our allocation there. We can say, oh, we need to add engineers to the cash management team because this, this is falling behind. So overall, that's been quite successful. There was recently an article, um, it was called uh, Spotify's Failed Squad Goals. And maybe you read about Spotify's kind of guilds and then this sort of complex idea, which is actually basically a matrix structure like the one I'm describing. And, and it talks about how Spotify quickly outgrew that. You know, the title's inflammatory, but I think it's a natural transition for a lot of engineering teams, you know, because it starts, you just have a front end team and a back end team, or you're just all one team. And then, you know, you need to evolve your organization. So I really, I think it's interesting to think about how orgs can be anti-fragile in addition to, uh, you know, kind of engineering processes. I'm thinking about uh, what you just said. And um, I kind of got stuck on the idea that um, by reorganizing your teams, you really gave more impact to the business, perhaps. If you have a cash management team and your engineering is organized around a business perspective, then really they have more interest in improving the business rather than improving the software per se. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and it goes back to this skin in the game idea, right? If I can succeed without actually helping the business, that's fragile. I can just say like, yeah, we increased RPS of this system. And it's like, okay, but does that actually help us do anything? So the more you can line your teams up, you know, and, and if you think about it, that's like a naturally lower entropy state. If you have like more direct connection between what you're trying to do at the highest level and what you're trying to do at the lower levels. Awesome. Now that we have a really anti-fragile team at our hands, what qualities are you looking for when you hire new engineers or new engineering managers for this team? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because Mr. Todd makes this point in Anti-Fragile. There's actually a really simple conclusion you can draw for an organization to be anti-fragile, which is like, it's a truism as well, but it's worth, it bears repeating, which is that you invest in people. You do not invest in ideas because things will change. You know, we know that. So the more you have people who are flexible and capable and brilliant, the better you'll do. So I think the main thing that all of us need to do as engineering managers is hire, retain, and develop our talent. And I consider that my number one job, you know, and, and especially uh, recruiting is a big part of what I do, uh, getting more people in, we're fortunate to be growing, but you can also do this by really helping your staff develop. And, you know, that that's everything from like providing the right training so that people have a chance, they have space to go learn something new to really helping them confront limitations they may be placing on themselves, their behaviors or their beliefs that, that are holding them back. So any investment you can make in, in people is a good investment. And, and that's like, that is anti-fragile. But you know, at Robinhood, like one thing we talk about a lot and we look for in our interview process is grit. And you know, if you think about it, like when you're in an interview, especially a coding interview, there's often a moment where you're like, this is hopeless. There's no way I'm going to finish this problem. It's stupid anyway. You know, like this always happens to me when I'm like, I'll just go check out this lead code problem. And I'm like, this is easy. And then I start doing it. I'm like, it's not as easy as it looks. And we're really looking for someone to, at that moment to double down and try something different. Or even if they ask for some help, you know, that can be good because like sometimes, you know, we can really like that's how we gain strength is from one another. So I think the interesting thing about being anti-fragile is it's not like you're always winning and having like a positive response to shock. It doesn't mean that when the shock happens, like you immediately benefit. What it means is that you survive the shock and you grow stronger for it. And you gave the example of uh, your muscles. When you lift a lot of weight, like the next day, your muscles aren't bigger and stronger. They're sore. But over time, they become bigger and stronger. What we need to remember is that being anti-fragile and being resilient, it doesn't always feel that good. You know, it can feel really crappy. But as long as we respond to it positively and we make an effort to uh, learn and grow, that's how we will benefit and succeed. So really, when you're when you're hiring or when you're in a in a hiring interview, you are looking for those same traits of a person being, I guess, resilient to, to change and they will be able to survive a shocking environment. I really just want, like I'm trying to picture how this would turn out in an interview. Here is an example. I have worked in HR and I made this uh, little map of how to get inside the office because our office was in an old school building filled with a bunch of other places. You know, it wasn't an office building. There was no reception desk or whatever. And um, to make the software developers' lives easier, I gave them this little map and checklist of, you know, like you have to go past by the mailboxes and then turn left and take the stairs and, um, you know, turn right on your third door and get into this hallway, whatever. Yet I found that maybe by giving them this little challenge of finding whatever street address, apartment number 17, I will get the people to think for themselves, perhaps. And I'm just curious as to how you could observe this in, a, in an engineering interview. Yeah. 
I love that. I love you should make the instructions wrong and then see what people <laughs> say about that, right? There's a great story about this. There's this famous story. I think it's the CEO of、uh, Charles Schwab. He would do this trick where he would invite candidates to breakfast. He would get there early and tell the server, "Hey, I want you to mess up the order of this person when they order breakfast, and then observe like how does this person handle that?" You know, and I. I love that. That's a great example of of, of grit and anti fragility, which is like presented with disappointment and not meeting immediate success. How do you respond? Because again, the whole point of anti fragile again is that like planning has low value. Your ability to predict, remember, like you you are bad at at predicting what's going to go wrong. So instead, you have to be able to be nimble and respond to what goes wrong. So that is a great example of how you could test for anti fragility. I think really in Robinhood interviews, the way it plays out is like we just see a number of people who give up; they don't keep trying. And I think that's the worst thing you can do in any interview situation is is to just say like this is stupid. Or we even see people who like do it wrong and then try to convince themselves that they've done it right. And again, these are qualities that I we really don't want on our engineering team or anywhere. In the world. Yeah, or anywhere. Not、exactly. making any political statements, <laughs> but you just don't want that. <laughs> Those people don't help usually. Yeah. Now that we are really running out of time, here is a really just like to the point question: What are the key things for you to do as an engineering leader to make your team anti-fragile? Well, we touched on this, but I think it's something that you hear the advice a lot. It's hard to enact. But I, I I think that your goal as an engineering leader is to remove yourself, and that actually requires a lot of courage. I think because we naturally and instinctively have this feeling of like we need to make ourselves important. Sometimes we're compensated really well, and we need to feel like we we're justifying like the role and the title that we hold by doing things more.、Uh, and so it's actually really difficult to let go of that and realize that. The best thing you can do is is help the team fend for themselves.、Um, now you can't just be absent. Although there is this quote which I really like, which is this idea that leadership is what happens when your back is turned. That is something that I always keep in mind, which is that the more I can just be like a program, you know, and people kind of know what I would say whether I'm there or not. That's actually really good. It's the reason why, as leaders, we especially in a larger organization, we find ourselves like. Repeating the same message a lot, or repeating and refining the message—it's not good if you're just saying the same thing over and over. It's good if you say something, you gauge the reaction, and then you adjust your message and say it again. But you know, another example of this is like at Robinhood for a little while, we'd have these like big decision meetings. So it'd be like, you know, we have to decide what we want to do with this one project, and we get like twenty people together and fifteen pages of written documentation and. The team would come in with a recommendation, but the idea is like we're going to have this meeting and then come out with a decision. This is something that I really try to avoid. First of all, it's not a great way to make decisions because, again, it's rare that the higher you go in the corporate ladder, the less likely it is that someone has knowledge that is relevant to making the right decision. And I think the other thing is like I have this idea that the more a decision hangs in the balance, actually, the less important it is. Because if there were an obvious thing that was better or worse, you'd know that already. So really, you're choosing between two equally not so great options. And what you want to do instead now is preserve optionality. 
Like the worst thing you can do is be faced with a 50-50 coin toss decision and hard commit to heads. You have very little information about what will happen. And there's a 50-50 chance that you're completely wrong and you're headed in the wrong direction. So the bigger a decision is, the more I try to look for like, first of all, what's the framing of this decision? What are the key factors that you're considering as you make this decision? Tell me that. Oftentimes I'll nitpick all of the rhetoric and the language that we use to describe the decision. Because if you can remove the emotion, you can use more neutral language. As you clarify the writing, and I really encourage people to write down these things because clear writing and clear thinking, I think are basically the same thing. So I would say as a leader, the thing you wanna do is help people think to help them be clear and gain confidence in what they're doing. And then also help them preserve optionality so that they can explore a path and then turn back. It's really a bad feeling when you have to just commit to something. Now, every once in a while, you do have to commit to something. And as a leader, it's really good if you can take responsibility for that decision because you have to, that's your job. And even though it may not really feel like you have a lot of freedom when you do that, you have to kind of portray the freedom that you have there and, and ultimately really believe it. So I think the result is surprising, but it's what you hear all the time, which is that you're trying to put yourself out of a job. That's hard because like, uh, I like my job. <laughs> I like what I do. But uh, if I'm doing it right, I won't be necessary at all. Right. So ultimately, you're trying to make yourself unnecessary and have the team still run on schedule and run on time and run on budget. They would do all the things that they know they need to do because we've all, we've all agreed that this is the way that we run, whether I'm there or not. You're not doing it for me, you're doing it for you. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think we have touched on a lot of different ideas that you have supported by hard facts and case studies. And we really turned this idea of anti-fragile into something that we can explore in our everyday lives. Is there anything else you would like to add to the conversation? No, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics. It was really fun talking to you and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now that we have come to the conclusion of our conversation, please tell us where our followers can follow you. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter as DMWLFF. I'm on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you, especially if you're interested in working at Robinhood. As I said, I'm always recruiting. So I hope to see you online. Awesome. Thank you for such an excellent conversation. Thank you, Adam, for joining us today. Um, Thanks for having me. Today, I talked with Adam Wolf, VP of Engineering at Robinhood, and he was kind enough to share some of his vast experience with the Level Up Engineering podcast listeners. If you find our content helpful, please subscribe and share what you liked about it or how we could improve. I am Carolina Toth, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time. See you next time.